Well, friends, my name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here at Anchor, and it's great that you could join us. Every time Grace does a monologue, I feel like not preaching because she does such a good job. But I'm going to preach anyway. It's uh, wonderful that you could join us. If you are friends or family of those who attend Anchor Church, so glad that you could be here with us tonight. Tonight, I'm going to preach for about 15 minutes, be done, and sing a few more carols, enjoy some supper, and you can head home and do whatever you do this Christmas Eve. So let me pray for us as we look at this story again. Father God, we thank you that you are the God who gets involved in the mess of this world and of our lives. We thank you for the story of Christmas. We pray tonight as we reflect on Jesus, on who he is and what he did, that you would work in our hearts and lives, that you would bring healing to mess. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. You know, it's kind of, uh, we're well into wedding season now. There's uh, plenty of weddings happening at the moment. I think if you're a school teacher, this is the time to get married because you have six weeks to enjoy an extended honeymoon over the summer school holidays. Our resident wedding photographer, Josh, all of a sudden is working every weekend instead of just sitting in the office and purchasing motorcycle parts and posting pictures on Instagram. And the really cool thing is that Danny and Nat are getting married in just over a week, which is really exciting. Weddings are fun things. Weddings are things that people are planning for for ages. I mean, some girls, and I'm not saying Nat is like this at all. I've done some marriage prep with them, and she seems cool, calm, and collected. In fact, maybe more chilled than Danny altogether. But some girls have been planning their wedding since they were five years old. Like, they've been planning out what dress they will wear, and who's going to be their bridesmaids, and where they'll get married, and the color of the dresses and the flowers, and you name it, they've planned it all out. And the hope is for a wedding that the day will be perfect. But sometimes things go wrong. Sometimes mistakes happen. You know, sometimes those mistakes are small, small mistakes. Like at our wedding, the caterers forgot to bring out the canapes. Just didn't arrive. Weren't there at all. But uh, sometimes the mistakes are big mistakes. Like I remember watching this YouTube clip once of a couple who were getting married And they were set up on this platform that was kind of next to a pool with a fountain in the background and the bride and groom are up there and the priest is there in his gown and collar and he's going through the vows and he says, do you have the rings? And the best man takes the ring out of his pocket, steps up onto the first step, trips, falls into the bride, pushes her, she grabs the priest, they both fall back into the water of the pool. That's hard to recover from as the best man at that point. I would go home if I was that guy. I'd be like, I'm sorry, guys, I, I forgot to, I've got a prior engagement that I... Sometimes things go wrong. You know, that story that we've just heard read and, and, and Grace tell us again is a story of a young couple who have plans for a wedding day, have got plans for how their perfect wedding day might play out and things start to go horribly wrong for them. The first Christmas, far from the airbrushed, photoshopped, hallmark-style Christmas that we see on cards and nativity scenes and TV shows, the first Christmas was a mess. It was a real mess. And I want to give you a couple of reasons this evening why the first Christmas was a mess. The first reason is, as we've seen, Mary falls pregnant. Mary falls pregnant. Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married. And that engagement period lasted 12 months, one year. It was a far more formal engagement to what we see today. In fact, if you were to end that engagement, you would need to sign divorce papers. That's how serious the pledge was to be married. But in this 12-month season, you weren't allowed to sleep with your future husband or wife. Even though you were practically married, 
You had to abstain for 12 months. And it's in this 12-month period that Mary falls pregnant. This is a big deal. Now, it's not a big deal, right, because she's going to be pregnant and she's not going to fit in her dress and she's going to have to go get a new one that accommodates for her rather large belly. That's not the big deal here. The big deal is that culturally and religiously, this is highly frowned upon. Culturally and religiously, for a young girl to fall pregnant out of wedlock is a big, big deal in the first century. So much so that religious law required the punishment for adultery, which is sex outside of a marriage relationship, is death. Capital punishment. Mary is afraid. She's got to tell her man that she's pregnant and that the child is not his. Grace did a wonderful job of explaining what that conversation might have looked like. But just put yourself in Mary's shoes for a second. She's facing the reality of her man walking away. She's facing the reality of being a single mom in a culture that has no welfare. She's facing the reality of being shunned by society, possibly even being disowned by her family, and maybe even being stoned to death. She comes to her husband or her husband-to-be, and she's like, baby, I've got news, I'm pregnant. That's not yours, obviously, because, you know, we haven't... Put yourself in her shoes for a second. Or imagine what it would be like for Joseph to hear that. Like, has he got any category in his head for God giving a virgin a child? He's like, is that, is that legit? Like, does God do that? Has she cheated on me? Is she seeing someone else behind me? How could I be so silly not to recognize that? Imagine what's going on for Joseph as he's thinking through what he would do. He plans to leave, divorce, marry and put this mess behind himself and move on, find someone else. And he would have gone through with that plan were it not for an angel appearing to him in a dream and telling him to marry Mary and to adopt this child as his son and to give him the name Jesus. So that's the first thing. That's the first mess is that Mary falls pregnant. The second mess is that there is this potential divorce on the cards here. Costly, messy, all of the families involved, they've invested in this. They're looking forward to the day that this young couple gets married. Chances are the parents may have even prearranged this marriage, been dreaming about matching Joseph and Mary up together, and potentially it could all fall apart and disappear. A week before Mary is about to give birth, a census is called and they have to travel to Nazareth. It's about the same distances from here to Newcastle, 120 k's as Grace mentioned, on donkey back. And I think the reason that all of the nativity scenes have Mary sitting sideways across the, across the donkey is because I can imagine it would be fairly uncomfortable to straddle a donkey normally when you're full-term pregnant. Now, I don't know what it was, whether it was eight to ten days of travel on a donkey a rough donkey ride, but whatever it was, Mary's waters break when she arrives to Bethlehem. She needs to deliver this child ASAP. No room in the inns, nowhere to stay. Child is born in a manger. Now, just so you get what this is like, I mean, Grace put us there visually, but culturally, so you know what that would be like today. It would be like driving up the old Pacific Highway, finding some old roadside truck stop that has a toilet that gets cleaned maybe once a week at best, 
delivering the child on the floor and then putting him in the sink. That's what it would be like. It's dirty, it's stinky, it's messy. This is not the romantic scene we see on the front of Christmas cards. It's a mess. You know, when we uh, gave, well, I didn't give birth. My wife gave birth to our first child, Judah. Before he was born, we had an appointment with the hospital to do a hospital tour. He was born at Nepean Private Hospital and we went in and they showed us where the microwave is and where the toilet is and they showed me that I'd have a bed to sleep on in the room next to Tash and there's an ensuite and there's air conditioning and there's a TV and there's a bar fridge and how different for Mary. Like Joseph and Mary have got all these plans for a wedding and children and none of it seems to be going their way. It's a mess. But the final mess comes with the threats of a tyrannical king who feels pressure, who is threatened by the promise of a birth of a new king. And so he orders the death of this child that is born. And when Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt and elude his clutches in an attempt to try and wipe Jesus out, he orders the death of every boy under the age of two. Bloodshed across the kingdom because of a weak, fearful king. It's a mess. This is the first Christmas. A child out of wedlock, potential wedding on the rocks, maybe a single mum shunned by society, abandoned by her family, possibly even the death penalty, a baby with a death sentence on his head. But that's the first Christmas, right? It's not the Christmas we see on TV. It's not the Christmas you see on the wiggles in the morning. The first Christmas was a mess, a total mess. And you've got to ask yourself the question, if God is in control, what is he doing right now? What is happening in this young couple's life? You know, God had a plan and it was a long-term plan and he knew exactly what he was doing. See, friends, we worship a God who executes his plan to perfection. God had a plan. And he announced that plan in at least two ways that we hear of in that passage. The first way that God announces that plan, we're here in verse 23 there, where Matthew writes of the prophet Isaiah, who was around 700 years before Jesus was born. And the prophet Isaiah predicts with amazing accuracy the events that happen in this family's life. He says that a virgin will give birth to a son. And you might think, well, I mean, what's the big deal? You've got a 50-50 chance of getting the sex of a child right. Like, boy, girl, what's it going to be? Take a guess. You could get that one right quite easily, right? But, but what, what are the chances of you predicting that a virgin is going to give birth? No, one, no one's going to believe that one. And then 700 years after Isaiah, inspired by God to prophesy this about Jesus, Mary comes and is pregnant. And she's a virgin. And so maybe God is at work in this mess. You know, the second way that God announces his plan is that in verse 20, he tells Joseph, by sending an angel appearing to Joseph, exactly what's going to happen. He says, Joseph, it's going to happen. Your wife-to-be is pregnant. She's going to give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He is going to save his people from their sins. And God tells Joseph 
exactly what is going to happen. And so we begin to look at these little threads of hope in the narrative and think, well, maybe God is in control. Maybe there is a plan amidst the mess of this story. Joseph is to give him the name Jesus. It's quite a common name, actually. There were plenty of Jesuses around in the first century. Um, There was just only one Jesus, son of Joseph, born in Nazareth to the Virgin Mary. But there were plenty of other Jesuses around. And we've got an English version of the name Jesus. It's Joshua. And there's a number of Joshuas in this congregation. It's a very common name that the angel tells Joseph to give his adopted son, Jesus. Quite different, isn't it, from some of the names that celebrities today tend to give their children. I don't know if you've ever come across any of them, like Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin, you know, lead singer of Coldplay, called their daughter after a piece of fruit, Apple. Apple. I don't know what her surname is, whether it's like Paltrow Martin or Apple Paltrow Martin. doesn't have a good ring to it to me. Apple. Or even better, Nicole Ritchie named her son Sparrow James Midnight. Sparrow James Midnight. Now, just so you know, there's only one name in those three. Like Sparrow and Midnight are not names. I don't know if Nicole Ritchie had figured that out. Uh, but uh, James, right, she's got one out of three. Sparrow James Midnight. Or Gwen Stefani named her children Zuma, Nesta, Rock. Sorry, that's one child. One child got three. Are they names? Zuma, Nesta. I don't even know if they're English. Maybe it's another language. And Rock. Zuma, Nesta, Rock. Good name, Gwen Stefani. Or Bob Geldof named his three daughters Peaches, Pixie, and Fifi Trixabel. Peaches, Pixie, and Fifi Trixabel. Or... Uh, um, Kate Winslet, just two years ago, had a boy, named him Bear. He's in Ra, Bear. But the king of, queen of pop, Kim and Kanye, they take the cake for me. Two years ago, they had a child. They named him North, as in Northwest. You know, Kanye West, Northwest. Apparently, Kim Kardashian wanted to name him Eastern. And it would have been East and West, but Kanye won and he got North. And just this week, they had their second child. And I don't know if it was a boy or a girl, but it got the name Saint West. But the king, the ultimate king of crazy names for children, is ha- would have to be Frank Zappa, the 1970s rocker. He had to think about five or six kids. They all got hilariously crazy names. Here are some of the highlights, because there's so many. One of his kids got the name Ian... Donald, Calvin, Euclid, Dweezil. That's one name. Imagine going to the RTA trying to feel like Ian, Calvin, Donald, Euclid, Dweezil. I'm running out of room. Can you get me a bigger form with more boxes? Like, Or his uh, daughter was called Moon Unit. Uh, that's legit. Like he called a child Moon Unit. But the best one of all, okay, is this. Diva Muffin. Diva Muffin Zappa. You know, as I was, um, I, I was Googling around for some of these names and I came across a story of this, this lady who had triplets and she wanted to name her triplets and so she gave them the names Faith, Hope and Kevin. <laughs> Faith, Hope and Kevin. You know, names have significance to them and for whatever reason celebrities give their kids crazy names it may mean special things to them but names carry meanings my name is Matthew 
and it means gift of God. Gift of God. Now I want to suggest that's a fairly difficult name to live up to. And maybe in the first three seconds of birth or the first three minutes after I was born, my parents were like, this child is a gift of God. But after three months of no sleep and constant crying, after a tumultuous teenage years at best, I'm pretty sure my parents were like, this child is a demon. Can we give it back? Child of God, it's a difficult title to live up to. Jesus lives up to his name. Jesus lives up to his name. His name, he means God saves. And the angel tells Joseph, you would have given him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God had a plan, a messy plan. And it involved more than just the mess of that first Christmas. It involved the mess of the cross as well. You see, Jesus may have escaped the clutches of the evil tyrant King Herod, but 33 years later, he fell under the control of another evil ruler named Pilate who sentenced him to death. In order for Jesus to save his people from their sin, he wouldn't have to die. He literally went from the manger to the cross. That was his mission. Jesus saves his people from their sins by taking the punishment that sin deserved. The mess that we'd made of our lives, the mess that we see in this world, Jesus came and died for that. Now you might think, well, really? Like, is my sin really that bad that someone might have to die for it? But the scriptures tell us that the sting of sin is death. That's what happened to our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they rejected God and were kicked out of the garden and experienced death physically, spiritually, for all eternity away from the presence of God for those who reject his offer of grace. It's a mess. We've made a mess of our lives, of this world. But you know, the problem is that we just don't think sin is all that serious We don't know what to do with it. Francis Schaeffer, that philosophical theologian of the past generation, said that sin fractures everything. Sin fractures everything. It fractures our vertical relationship with our Creator. It fractures our horizontal relationships with other people. It even fractures the internal relationship within ourself. And it fractures the relationship that we have with this creation. Sin has made a mess of everything in this world. And Jesus is the only one who can fix it. See, ignoring sin won't make it go away. Trying to cover sin up with good works won't make it go away. Pretending that they don't exist won't make it go away. Only Jesus by his death on the cross, can save his people from their sins. Jesus saves us by dying, by paying the price that sin had incurred, the price of death. In 1994, when I was about 13 or 14 years old, myself and two other friends thought it would be a genius idea to take my mum's work car for a drive. I was quite short, in year eight, year nine, barely able to see over the steering wheel and reach the pedals at the same time. 
but we thought it would be a great idea to drive around West Penner Hills, and we did. One corner from my house, turning into a corner, I mistook the brake for the accelerator, went up the gutter into a tree at about 80 kilometers an hour, wrote the car off, $20,000, brand new little Ford Laser. Insurance company that owned the car tried to recover the costs, and because I was a miner, didn't have a cent to my name, they couldn't recover any costs from me, they couldn't recover from my parents, they hadn't given me permission to drive the car, so there was no agency, so they couldn't recover the costs from mum and dad. But on my 18th birthday, just before my HSC trial exams, I get a letter in the mail. Statement of liquidated claim. I'm being sued for $20,000. And if I don't pay it back, they're going to take me to court. You know, time hadn't made that debt go away. All of the good things that I'd done in the four years to make up for that horrible mistake didn't make that debt go away. Ignoring it, pretending it wasn't there, forgetting about it didn't make that debt go away. You know, the only thing that made that debt go away was my dad taking out his checkbook and writing a check and giving it to the insurance company and paying it for me. And friends, that's exactly what God does for us. That's what the message of Christmas is about. God fixing the mess of this world. God paying the price that sin had incurred by the blood of Jesus. And that plan was initiated in the mess of Mary and Joseph's little circumstance in Nazareth and in Bethlehem. You know, the only difference between that story and my story is that eventually I had to pay my dad back. But with God, we don't. In fact, we can't. The scandal of the Christian message is that this gift that God offers, this gift of forgiveness, is free. We call it grace. And it's a wonderful gift. It is the best gift that you could ever receive. God had a plan. His plan involved the mess of the first Christmas to fix the mess of this world and the mess in our lives. Now, I don't know where you're at this Christmas tonight, this Christmas Eve, and where you're at on your spiritual journey. I don't know what tomorrow looks like for you. Maybe tomorrow is going to be a mess. Maybe tomorrow you face awkward family, broken relationships, memories of lost loved ones, depression, loneliness. I don't know what tomorrow looks like. Maybe tomorrow for you is the exact opposite. And maybe tomorrow for you is filled with family and more food than you can stomach and more gifts than you really need and heaps of fun and cards and champagne and whatever tomorrow looks like for you. The reality is that we all need Jesus, every single one of us. Because every single one of us has made a mess of our relationship with our God and Creator and Jesus came to fix the mess by getting His hands dirty, getting involved in the mess of this world paying for the debt that our sin had incurred and offering us a new start. The gift of Christmas is the best gift that you could ever hope for. It's Jesus offering you his perfectness. He says, let me take your mess. Here, take my perfection. Friends, our hope for you at Christmas, our hope for you here at Anchor is that you would receive the gift of grace. That's our prayer that as this season rolls on, that you would pause to think about what happened nearly just over 2,000 years ago in the life of a young couple called Joseph and Mary. 
and the rescue mission that Jesus started. I'm going to pray for us, invite the band to come up. We're going to close by singing a few more carols and we're going to enjoy some supper. So please join me as I pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that despite the mess of the first Christmas, that you had a plan, that you had a plan to fix the mess of this world, the mess that we'd made of it, the mess of our lives. And we want to ask that you would help us to pause and ponder and remember that this Christmas, that you in Christ have offered us the most generous gift, a fresh start, a transformation, a clean slate, forgiveness. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.